We're certainly glad to be back with you all and hearing y'all sing. And it's a, an encouragement to, to do so and to, to be a part with y'all this morning. Uh, and, and again, uh, just so thankful for the Lord's kindness and provision uh, for us to have this, this meeting spot. And thank you for, for those who, who helped out in getting, that, uh, getting this uh, squared away and, and taken care of. So we appreciate that. If you have your, your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke 24 this morning. Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. We are uh, winding up uh, in this, uh, this journey, through three-year journey through the Luke's, uh, Luke's Gospel. Um, uh, we have three more messages from Luke's Gospel, and then we will transition to the Old Testament. Uh, and this, uh, this one in, included... Uh, chapter 24, however, is quite a remarkable and amazing chapter that we have studied over these, over these uh, weeks together. Uh, after Jesus' crucifixion and his death on the cross, uh, in chapter 24, we begin to see the first reports of Jesus' resurrection from the tomb. Uh, one of the first reports of that is the empty tomb itself, um, that the tomb is empty. There were angels in the tomb that declared that, uh, that uh, why are you here looking for the living among the dead? There was the testimony of the women who saw the empty tomb as well as hearing the testimony of the, of the angels uh, that morning. Um, second story that we saw or second scene that we saw of the, we, we, began, we saw the, the resurrected Jesus Christ, however, who was an incognito from these two disciples on the road to uh, Emmaus. They were unable to see who he was uh, and, and recognize they were spiritually hindered by the Lord so that Jesus, as he taught the scriptures to them, that they would believe from the scriptures that Jesus was, uh, or, uh, that Jesus had read, been resurrected from, uh, resurrected from the dead. So he goes through this this amazing Bible study uh, with them, all the way from the Old Testament, all the way to uh, to the resurrection, showing that God is fulfilling His promises and that Christ has risen. They arrive to Emmaus. Jesus was still hidden. He stays for dinner. He blesses the meal. He breaks the bread. And in the meal, Jesus is revealed to them uh, who he is. And boom, then he vanishes from them. These two disciples are, are stunned and overwhelmed and amazed as, they, as the dots begin to connect in their minds together. And they, they realize that the burning of their hearts was from the preaching of the word of God and that the word of God was true and that God had kept his promises. And so they rushed back to Jerusalem to gather with all the other, all the other disciples, kind of like what we are doing this morning. They confirmed the women's testimony from earlier that morning. They confirmed Simon, Simon Peter's story of seeing that Jesus was alive. And then they began to tell them how Jesus appeared to them along the road. And that is where we are left this morning. But what was the testimony? What did they say? What was the conversation that, that, that time, that evening, 
in the upper room, of course I'm assuming it's still the upper room, that Jesus has risen. And that he has risen indeed. So let's look at the text now. And let's see what happens now in verse 36 in Luke's gospel, chapter 24, starting in verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and he said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do you doubt? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieved for joy, and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it before them. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. So this is the third scene in Luke's gospel of, of Jesus' appearance to his disciples. Everyone who is left is gathered together in, in this room. And they're, they're still scared. And now they're, they're more confused. And they're still trying to figure things out. They're still misunderstanding all the things that have been happening. They've heard the testimony. And yet still they have to decide together if Jesus really had risen from the dead, if these things really had happened. And then, and in that moment, is when Jesus appears to them. And, and just like this scene of that night, the pattern that we've seen throughout chapter 24 continues. That, that particular that particular pattern has, has been the same in the sense that they were in fear and they were in doubt. And, 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 and then what happens? They are confronted with the truth. They're confronted with the word of God. They're given the scriptures to believe and to see. And then they go and tell. And, and we're going to see that in, in just a, a few moments. Or not, not today, but next week, actually. So maybe a few moments. Uh, that's. Uh, Jesus is going to just, just pour on them the scriptures like he did with the two disciples on the Emmaus Road. And then he is going to send them out after he redirects them to the word of God. So the same pattern happens even in this night. They're startled. They're frightened. Even though that they have those reliable sources. And even with Jesus standing right in front of them. But this morning, I want to focus on the first part of the text. That's why we stopped at verse 43 this morning. And I especially want to focus on the first words that Jesus has for his disciples when he sees them all together for the first time. What does he tell them? What does he say to them? What does he tell them to do that morning? And, and the gospel writer 
the inspired gospel writers shows us what Jesus shows them. The same evidences for us to believe so that we would believe as they would believe. So for this sermon, I could think of no other title than Jesus' very own words, but peace to you. And that's what brings, and that's what Jesus brings to his disciples that morning. And brothers and sisters, every time we gather, and when we open up his word and we dive into the gospel, we hear the words of Jesus resounding, peace, peace to you. And I want you to see, and I want you to hear this morning, the resurrected Savior who brings peace. Peace to his people. Despite their circumstances of, of living in a fallen world, he brings us peace. In fact, that's what he has come to do. And it's his resurrection that has sealed the deal that we may now experience and have peace with God and with man through him. These three words that Jesus greets them with are just simply amazing to me. That's why I had to stop at verse 43. Because I couldn't get away from what he has said. And, and not in an unbelieving kind of way. Like, I can't believe that Jesus would say that. But in an, amazing, an amazement kind of way. Because when you experience and have the peace of God, it's simply amazing. And to hear Jesus with this very simple three words, peace to you, there's something that each and every one of us, we could resound with that if you were in Christ with the peace of God. Because we have peace with God. Peace of God and peace with God is what Jesus has accomplished on the cross for his people. And if you consider the whole narrative of Scripture, the entirety of Scripture, peace with God and for his people is pretty much the whole point. It's pretty much the, the main theme. And so what Jesus himself, the word of God, comes into that room and he greets them with what? The purpose and point of the gospel. To bring peace was from sinners to a holy God and to be reconciled before him. And so before these amazing three verses, three words, though, I think it's also real stunning and it also kind of builds the drama of the whole scene is that Jesus disappeared from those dudes on the road to Emmaus, right? As they were about to eat. And then he stood among them in the room. He stood among them in the room. Uh, John's gospel actually tells us that, and, and John probably knows this because he did it, he locked the door. They locked the door. They shut themselves out from the world. And why? And it, John tells us, because we were scared. We were scared that, that the Jews would come against us. Especially now if people were going around saying that Jesus is alive and that the tomb is empty. We're next. They're going to come to us. They're going to think that we took him. But look what Jesus' first words again are, right? 
I mean, the, the drama of the moment is just amazing. But what are the words that Jesus should have said to them? Not that I'm standing in correction of Jesus, but could he have stood among them and say, you fearful morons. No, he says peace to you. And why? Because our God is a God of peace. And Jesus came to bring that peace. Now, peace to you is a typical greeting. It is a typical greeting. In fact, it, it kind of reminded me of, uh, of church services of old. You might remember going to church services where at the beginning of the service, there's usually this moment of fellowship, the piano is playing, and then the choir would start singing to tell you to shut up and sit down, right? And, and you turn around, you're shaking hands. Good morning, good to see you, love you, love you, you know, stuff like that. Uh, it, it reminds me of when, um, uh, when I was younger and I would go to church with my mom to, to the Catholic uh, church, and, and when they had their fellowship time, uh, you would greet people by saying, uh, peace be with you, and the person would respond back and also with you. So if you're the first one to greet, you would say, peace be with you, and, that, and the other person would respond back uh, and, and also with you. And, and Jesus' words sound very much like that, like that very typical greeting. However, they are, they are filled with such depth and, and great meaning that we should consider. In, in the Hebrew, this, this piece is shalom. And it implies so much more than just a greeting of, of hello or peace out. It implies a total well-being. It, it implies a, 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 a wholeness, a harmony, a prosperity, and a security before the Lord's presence. When we greet one another in the peace of God, that's what we are saying to one another. May you be secure before the Lord's presence. I uh, like what uh, Cornelius Plantinga said about the peace of God. He said, the, the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. Shalom, in other words, is saying this is the way things ought to be. When we experience the peace of God together with one another, it's us saying this is the way it ought to be. When we're singing the, the praise and the glory of Christ like we just did, this is the way it ought to be. Amen. This is the way it ought to be. The peace of God, the peace that Jesus brings to you and he brings to me is the peace that brings flourishing and it brings wholeness and fulfillment and delight. And what Jesus is bringing, what he brought that evening to that room, and what he brought to us was what? Restoration and fulfillment. Brothers, this is the way it ought to be. Do we need that peace? Does our world need that kind of peace? When God created the world, everything in the garden 
of Eden flourished. When, when God said that it was good, He was saying that all was at peace. That all would flourish. That, that every part of it, from its very smallest tiny atom to the, to the largest of everything, was at peace with God. It was in its perfection, in its shalom. There was no death. There was no sickness. There was no sin, no failure, no decay. Only life in vitality and flourishing. And it was good. There was no shame. There was no guilt. All of creation was at peace with God. It was in shalom. Everything was marked by peace with God. And that peace was Shown in every relationship. Every, every relationship, God and creation were at peace. Man and creation were at peace. God and man were at peace. And everything was exactly as it ought to be. As God created it to be. To be at peace with Him. True peace, brothers and sisters, is peace with God. That is true peace. And that is the peace of God. And yet, all that changed. And, and we know that all of that changed because certainly the world that we live in is not a world of peace. We know that. Everything outside of here is not a world of peace. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, the world has known nothing but strife in conflict, in sin. Adam's sin changed all of that. It's what brought a fracture into this world. And it, was, and it has been since then completely irreparable by man. Sin has vandalized all of our relationships. All goodness of creation has brought with it disunity, conflict, strife, enmity, hatred, separation, and death. No longer are we in that natural state of peace and shalom as it ought to be with God. And if we are not at peace with God, then we will not be at peace with each other. Sin has broken, fractured those relationships and all relationships. Even in the ones that we want to be in. Even in our marriages. Even in our friendships, our relationships with our children. They're they good and they have elements of, of good and good things, but they're still broken. And we've experienced those brokenness in times of strife. So, why is there such hatred, violence, and destruction in almost all relationships? Even in good times of civility, national unity, or public harmony among people, families, communities, are they really at peace? Or is it more like a carnal civility? Which is good. After all, we're, we're made in the image of God, and we share many attributes together because of what God has created in us, as His people created in His image, but still will we be at true peace with one another. But here's the deal. And what Jesus, I think, is exclaiming that night, in those simple three words, what he's telling us here is that God has sent his son 
a better Adam, into a world to bring peace, to restore the peace of God. And the only peace that, that can come through God and man is the peace that Jesus gives and what Jesus has accomplished on the cross through the gospel. We've seen that this peace was, was coming through Christ in Luke's gospel. Zechariah uh, prophesied it at the very beginning of the gospel when he said, It gives light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Angels declared this peace to the world at his incarnation. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Among those whom he is pleased. In John 14, Jesus said, Peace I leave you. My peace I give to you. Listen to what he says. Not as the world do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. This world gives a peace. It tries to achieve a particular peace, but it's not his peace. And if that's the kind of peace that we rely on, it's counterfeits. It's short-lived and it can be false. John 16, he says, I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Again, Jesus is making the comparison between true peace of God that only comes through him and the counterfeit peace of the world. And really what we get from this world is what? Tribulation. As we get tribulation. Oh, but let's not forget those last words he says, but oh, I have overcome the world. He has overcome the world. And we can take heart. Why? Why can we take heart? How can we have peace when we live in a world of tribulation? Because he has overcome the world. He has overcome sin and death. True peace comes only from the Lord. And it's with that peace that Jesus came into the room that night. His peace report restores to us as it began to restore to them what life ought to be. And in all of us, in all those ways that sin has ravaged and vandalized and destroyed and corrupted, he has come to restore. And that's the peace of God. The peace of Jesus that is also extended to us. Peace to you. So what is that peace then that Jesus brings? What is the shalom that he is restoring? Many of us would say that, many, many would say that the peace of God is, is just a feeling. It's just a, an emotion that we would go through. It's, it's maybe the, it's a justice that we would achieve between individuals or between groups. Some would say it's not God whom we need peace with, but it's with each other that we need peace with. Others would say that peace comes from comes in his favor toward you, in the blessings of success and fame and, and popularity and love and, and, and wealth. 
Is that really the peace that Jesus is speaking of to that room, to those guys who are scared to death? If that is so, how cheap that peace would be. How ineffectual that peace would be. Not lasting and, and certainly not eternal. Because out of those 11 disciples, 10 of them would be brutally martyred. And one of them would be exiled for the rest of his life to be basically a slave on the island of Patmos, the Apostle John. So it's certainly not that kind of peace. So what is the peace? What is this fullness, this totality of well-being and and what will restore the relationship between God and man and then restore relationships between men? He brings the peace of forgiveness, the forgiveness of sin, the gospel of peace that those disciples would carry into the, the jaws of this world was the gospel of peace. It was the gospel of peace, the forgiveness of God that God has made a way. His disciples room, the doors locked. And what are these disciples discussing? They're discussing, is Jesus really resurrected or not? But I think also what they're also thinking and they're considering in their minds is their own guilt. And their own shame. Especially Peter. How, how they let Jesus, Jesus down in his suffering and his death. They all abandoned their master and they left him to die alone. They had forgotten their their profession that they had made to him. And they they scattered in fear and guilt. They're they're confused and they're unbelieving of the news that Jesus is not dead, but he's alive. And he's teaching amazing Bible studies. They're struggling whether to believe that or not. And to make matters worse, when Jesus shows up, what happens? What do they do? They're scared and they're frightened. And they don't even believe it's him. They think it's a ghost. But what does Jesus say? Peace to you. There's no words of rebuke. Not one sharp word of I told you so. But our Savior came calmly and quietly into the room. And he says, peace to you. Again, it was... More than a greeting. And he bid them to delight in the peace of God through his forgiveness. The death and resurrection of Jesus has achieved this forgiveness and this peace with God. On the cross, Jesus absorbed completely the wrath of God against sin. The sins of his people who were enemies, who were in strife, in conflict against God. Those who were far off, he has brought near and has done what? Brought peace. He has taken away everything that has prevented there being peace between us and God. Ephesians 2 tells us that in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Brothers and sisters, this is what the peace of God does. This is what the gospel does. It has achieved the forgiveness of sins in order that we would have peace with God. What Jesus should have said to you when he came into your life was what? Guilty. Condemned. But what did he say to us? When we were guilty, confused, fearful, angry, unbelieving, hostile toward God, he spoke words peace to you. That's the glory of the gospel. And now we have peace with God through the forgiveness of our sins. His peace is eternal. Because of his bodily resurrection, Jesus has secured this certain promise that all things would also be made new. That sin would be vanquished forever. And that one day we would live in a new and restored world of perfect peace and harmony. When a dead and decaying world full of pain and sin will be completely undone. As he suddenly appeared in that room. Peace to you. He will come back. And he will bring a shalom like we have never experienced and restore this world and make all things new and right. You see, he knows all there is to know about you. He knows every little thing that ought to condemn you. Justly. And yet, by his grace, he says to his, our hearts, peace to you. He says to sinners, peace to you. There is no sinner who desires to be forgiven more than Jesus is willing to forgive. J.C. Ryle said this. He said, free, full, and undeserved forgiveness to the uttermost is not the manner of man, but it is the manner of Christ. And he has brought us forgiveness and peace with God. But if we have this peace with, with God and we look forward to the day that we will perfectly and fulfilly live in the peace of God. But can we experience that peace now? How is that peace then, then uh, uh, lived out today? Can it be lived out today? Well, certainly. Because if we have peace with God 
If we have peace with God and God has made a way and brought reconciliation that we would be at peace with him and that we can live in peace, what does that then mean for all of our other relationships that we have? That we can live in peace with them. If we are at peace with God and he knows all of all of our sins and yet through the atoning work of Christ on the cross and we have been forgiven of our trespasses by his grace, we have been saved. Then in that peace that completely then changes how we deal and how we live with one another and with others. How do we handle those difficult relationships in our families, at work, even in church? We handle them in peace. Because now we are people of peace. We handle it in a manner of love and forgiveness as Christ has handled us with love and forgiveness. If the most important relationship in your life with the Lord is marked by Love and grace and peace and forgiveness. And that is complete and it's full and it's not lacking in any measure. Then that's going to mean that you will not be as affected in those lesser relationships. We have to go through some hard days. We have hard days. And often those hard days is because we have to deal with some difficult people. But remember, if we are at peace with God, then we're at peace with the creator who made this world. How do we love one another? How do we submit to one another and bear with one another? Bear the loads and the burdens and the offenses of others. In all of our relationships, in our marriages, in our friendships, by the peace of God. Because we are at peace with God. How in the world do you love your enemy? How do you love those who don't care about you, who don't care about God, who don't care about what you believe and don't want to hear what you believe? And only want to marginalize everything that you believe and the Lord. We do so because we are at peace with God. Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church, it ends this way. In an exhortation, I think it's fitting for us. He says, finally, brothers, rejoice. (laughs) Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the the God of love and peace will be with you. How do the disciples know? How do the disciples know that Jesus has come and brought peace? How do we know that Jesus has come and brought peace to our lives and to our hearts? How do we know that his peace then is is sufficient for us to be these people of peace in such a hostile world? Well, what does Jesus do for them? What does Jesus do for them in this passage to to reassure them uh, uh, that when they are startled and when they are frightened? He grounds this peace 
in the reality of what? Of his bodily resurrection. Amen. He grounds the whole thing in, the, in his bodily resurrection. Brothers, why can you be at peace right now? Because I am here. I'm alive. And you can have assurance that you are at peace with God. Why? Because I am alive and here is my body to prove it. He says, why are you troubled and why are your doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands? You see my feet? It is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as as you see that I have. What does Jesus do? He directs them to look and to see his resurrected body. He's not a spirit. He's not a ghost. He's not an illusion. He's not something mystical. It's It's not witchcraft. He's not asking them, listen to this. He is not asking them to believe something that's contrary to their senses. He's not asking them to believe something that's contra- contradictory to, his, to their five senses that God has given them. He said, believe it with your own eyes. Believe it with your own hands. Here I am. And verse 41 says, they still disbelieve for joy. That text puzzled me all week. I was like, what do you, what do you mean disbelieve for joy? How do you disbelieve for joy? What does disbelieving for joy even mean? And they were marveling. Well, what it means is, at least is what I kind of came down, that it was too good to be true. This is too good to be true. This isn't happening. Right? That they were marvelous, too good to be true. And then what does Jesus do? Hey, you got any food? Got any food over there? What is that? What is that I smell? Oh, it's boiled fish. Ooh, okay. Well, that's all you got. And he took it and he ate it. What? Why is that? I mean, out of all the times in the Bible that this is what we want to see, this is, this is Jesus' meal. I mean, there's several different times of, of we see Jesus eating, but why this? Why does Jesus, Jesus want the broilfish? Was he hungry? Maybe. I don't know. He hadn't eaten three days. Remember, he skipped the meal in Emmaus. Maybe broilfish was his favorite. I, I don't think so. Doesn't sound very good to me. What was he doing? But he was showing these guys, dead men don't eat. Ghosts do not eat food. You see, it was imperative for the disciples to believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead. And this is a sign of his bodily resurrection. Because what it means is this, is it means that the work of substitutionary atonement and their justification and all the propitiation has all been accomplished. The wrath of God has been completely satisfied. And accepted. He was showing them the evidence of his victory over sin and death, and that the peace of God is with them, and it has been accomplished. And he's also showing that he is at peace. He is at peace. Our sins have been paid for, our sins and our death has been defeated, and our future resurrection is. For sure. If it was just his spirit and not his body that was alive, 
then his victory would only be partial, and so would ours. And yet he is showing them by showing this, look, my hands, my my feet, I'm eating food. He is showing that he is truly alive. And if he's truly alive, then he's truly victorious over sin and death. So have peace. Be at peace, brothers. Be at peace, sisters, so that we can have peace and assurance in this life. The peace that God gives to us, brothers and sisters, is an assurance that your sins have been completely forgiven, that they have been completely atoned for, past, present, and future, to his glory. As Christ was the first fruit of the glory of God and has been resurrected, he is the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. Brothers and sisters, one day, we too will live again as Christ will live it again. And we have peace in that assurance. The simple thing that Jesus did, look at my hands, look at my feet, give me some fish, is so that we would have certainty of his bodily resurrection in order that we would believe those three words, peace to you. So that in a world where peace is needed most, and so that when in your life, when things of this world and even of our flesh seeks to rob us of that peace, when guilt comes our way, when shame uh, falls over us, when sin and relationship, enemies, suffering, weakness, death, and the list can go on and on, we can live in peace and assurance, fully knowing that Jesus has overcome this world in his resurrection. And when we are confident in these things, when we are confident in these things, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, then we can be confident in our hearts and in every part of our life in faith that the, the soil then is fertile to be at peace. And when our heart is at peace, then we will grow and we will mature and we will love and we will endure and we will serve and persevere and forgive. So many want peace. So many in this world want peace. And they're so blinded to how to achieve it. They strive for it. They steal for it. They lie for it. They struggle for it. They destroy others for it. They cry out for it. They fight for it. It's hard to watch on a daily basis. Our world demand peace from sources that can never give peace. And yet we know that the Lord has given us, his people, his peace. And it's a peace that is beyond comprehension. It's a peace that actually means something. It's a peace that God has provided and that only God can give in reconciling us to him for his glory and for our joy. It's a, a peace of knowing that we have been forgiven in Christ alone. A peace that gives us a firm assurance of our salvation and a firm position before our Lord as sons of God. <clears throat> 
Our assurance is certain because Christ has risen from the dead. And He is alive. And He is reigning at the right hand of our Father. The peace that we enjoy changes everything from death to life in all of our relationships from strife to peace. So, rejoice in the Lord always. I say again, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We, of most, most of all, can be at peace even when all around us is chaos. We can be at peace with one another and we can be at peace in this world because we are at peace with God. So brothers and sisters, I end this sermon by saying peace to you. Let's pray. Father, what peace you have given to us this morning in Christ, the forgiveness of sin. You have broken down the great wall of hostility between us and our sin the sins that we've committed in this world, Lord, the, the sins of even our own re religiosity, where we seek to earn the love of God, Lord, you have broken down that wall and you have drawn us near. Heavenly Father, help us now as we consider these things. Help us now to find peace in these things. Help us now to encourage one another to be at peace. I love you and we thank you. We give you the glory and the praise. And in Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen.